You want to talk about an anthem to get you pumped for the playoffs? Well, you just heard it. That was The Leafs Are the Best, co-written by then-Leaf Glenn Anderson, which dropped during the 92-93 season. Now, in the music video, the entire team is goofing off on the ice at the gardens, singing along like it's a poor man's live aid. Doug Gilmore looks like he belongs in a biker gang. He's actually riding around on the ice on his motorcycle. Classic killer. The guys do the Mexican wave. Mike Myers is riding the pine in a blue bucket next to Dave Anderchuk. The whole thing is completely bonkers. But friends of mine can still sing that song off by heart. It's a nostalgia-packed cultural touchstone. Now, I know what you're thinking. How can an anthem as goofy as that avoid getting cruelly spiked into the ground? Well, just imagine if the team put out something like that today. Ooh, that would be weird. But the story of that song and its video is the story of a very particular moment in the city. A moment where, after a decade of losing and scandal and embarrassment, the fans of the franchise were so happy to finally say the Leafs are the best without wincing or irony that they were downright giddy. This is the story of that moment of the 92-93 season and the fastest 180 degree turnaround in franchise history, as told by the people who lived it. And we talked to everyone on this one. Cliff Fletcher, Doug Gilmore, Wendell Clark, Felix Potvin, Nikki the Stick Borchevsky, and the man who called so many of the greatest moments from that season, Joe Bowen. The story they tell us is one heck of a ride, a ride that got us one missed call away from the promised land. So close, we could taste it. I'm Scotty Willits, and this is Leafs Forever. Hey, it's Freddie Anderson here, and I've just launched my very own music playlist called Frederick Anderson's 31. It features 31 of the tracks that I'm listening to right now. You can check out 31 and all the official Toronto Maple Leafs playlist exclusively on Apple Music and the Leafs app. All right, everybody. It looks like hockey might indeed be getting ready to come back. The boys are back on the ice practicing in small groups of six. And so we here at Leafs Forever thought we'd help get y'all ready for the playoffs by looking at one of the best runs in recent Leaf memory, the 92-93 season. Now, how do people become Leaf fans? For some, it's because their moms or dads or grandparents were diehards. They grew up hearing all about the dynasties of the 40s and the 60s, the great teams who came before. But to really keep the torch burning, you need the excitement of winning. For many now in their 30s and 40s, the 92-93 team is the one that made them the fans that they are today. It certainly happened for my boy, our producer, Paul Matthews. Hey, buddy. How you doing? Good, my man. So is that really what kind of made you bleed blue? Completely. I was 11 up until that point. You know, my parents were fans. I was a fan in name only. You know, like I put the pennant up on the wall and I had the posters. But uh -huh. like, to be honest, it was empty gestures for me. I kind of love Mario Lemieux. I kind of love Wayne Gretzky. I kind of love Billy Ranford. But this was the season that actually made me get it. Today's episode is going to be a fun one because we have to sit down with our Leaf legends, Gilmore, Wendell, Cliff, Felix, Borshevsky. I mean, you have to talk to Nikki. And this guy's not known for being like, you know, Mr. Chatty Cathy, right? No, not at all. I mean, take a listen to this clip. This is about as much sound as we ever got out of Nikki Borshevsky when he was a player. Uh, our team win. Unbelievable. The cool thing about this was, during the entire time Nikki Borshevsky was in Toronto, he never got interviewed in his native language in Russian, right? We finally said, you know what, Nikki, we've got a translator for you. Let's have a conversation, a real conversation. And we got to learn some amazing stuff about him. I'm super excited for people to hear it. You also got to talk to Andy Petrillo. She kind of had the same experience as you, right? 
Exactly. Yeah. So basically, like this season happens, uh, 92, 93. She's 12 years old. She's kind of our guide through this episode. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like this is an episode for anybody that's 30 or above because they can relate to it. And anybody that's 30 or younger, you really got to understand how intense this season was and the reason why we still talk about it today. I can't wait to get into it. Let's do it. Fall, 1992. End of the Road by Boys to Men is on top of the Billboard charts. The Mighty Ducks and Tom Selleck's Mr. Baseball hit North American theaters in the same weekend. And 12-year-old Andy Petrillo has no idea that her life is about to change forever. Long before she was hosting Leaf's Lunch on TSN or co-hosting Road to the Olympics on CBC or working on Hockey Night in Canada, Andy was just a sports-loving kid getting ready for her 13th birthday. Like so many kids in the GTA, Andy lived in a devout Leafs household. And we are talking devout. Hockey is what made my family feel Canadian. I come from a a family of immigrants. My mom came here when she was three, so, you know, my grandparents, uh, they came in the 50s, and then my dad came when he was a teenager to Canada. And it was always this sport of hockey that Canadians were talking about, and especially for my grandfather in the 50s where soccer was really big. He's like, what is this sport of hockey you guys keep talking about? And in particular, who are these Toronto Maple Leafs? My grandfather scrounged up his money, uh, bought a TV, And even though he would go to work, he would call back home to say, hey, can you give me the Leafs update? He was a diehard fan right up into the day he passed. You know, we buried him with a Toronto Maple Leaf pin on his lapel. You know, hockey made them feel Canadian. And the Toronto Maple Leafs, that was a language everybody understood. And, you know, that's why it's such a, I have a soft spot, you know, for the sport. And in particular, that team, because it welcomed my family. Andy was like a lot of kids her age full of energy, desperate to be outside. Her family was devoted to watching the Leafs on TV, but she didn't get it. Fresh baked bread. At your local True Value. I was definitely an active kid, loved playing sports. I hated watching sports on TV, and it would drive me crazy when my parents would just sit there night in and night out, and I just couldn't understand why they didn't want to come out and, you know, stand in net for me while I took shots at them. Pepperoni and cheese. Andy's indifference was understandable. The games her family was watching, they were, to be blunt, horrible. Between 1980 and 1992, the Leafs hadn't managed a winning record once. Us fans, we call those the Ballard years. Named after the much maligned team owner, Harold Ballard. Harold Ballard was an outrageous character. As absolute boss of Maple Leaf Gardens, he's been called a pirate, a bully, an oaf, and a vulgar male chauvinist pig. He said whatever he wanted to say and did whatever he wanted to do. He didn't seem to care if no one liked it. He would do outrageous things to make sure he did get in the news. Jerky little Ziegler says he's going to charge us $25,000 if we sign any of those. 
For Ballard, the Gardens and the Maple Leafs hockey team are like big, expensive toys. It was said the only four-letter word that he didn't understand was tact. If things had been quiet around the Gardens for a while, or if uh, baseball and football were getting too much attention, you could be sure Ballard would come up with something ridiculous to uh, get hockey back uh, and Ballard back in the news. Even though Ballard had been there when the team had won cups, even though he'd introduced the world to stars like Daryl Sittler, Lanny McDonald, and Borea Saming, the 80s, they brought in a dark period, characterized by intense frugality, crazy turnover, backbiting, front office drama, and fan apathy. Beloved Leafs play-by-play man Joe Bowen arrived in 1982, just in time to call some of the worst of those seasons. Suddenly, he had a front row seat to watch the team's reputation get dragged through the mud. They were awful. Harold was a very unique individual, and he was the boss. Uh, And he made sure everybody knew that he was the boss. And the boss didn't like to spend money irresponsibly or on things he didn't think were required, like assistant coaches or video or anything that might have been on the cutting edge of hockey. Sometimes, sure, the Leafs would fall ass backwards into a playoff spot by default. But that's only because back in the 80s, everyone and their sister made the playoffs. Toronto, one of Canada's truly great hockey cities, but the pressure to win has become immense on recent Maple Leaf hockey team. In fact, the current edition of the Leafs seems to find it easier on the road. Live from the Civic Arena in Pittsburgh, we bring you the Toronto Maple Leafs and the Pittsburgh Penguins. But in this city, this week, football fever has gripped everybody. But we push football aside for a couple of hours tonight to bring you the NHL hockey attraction, Pittsburgh and Toronto. And the buzzer goes, and the Detroit Red Wings have swept the four-game season series of the Toronto Maple Leafs, winning this one by a score of 5-3. to three, And we'll be back quickly to tell you all about it after we pause now for this. Well, the Leafs continue a desperate struggle to make the playoffs in the Norris Division. Very, very bad. It could have been worse. Looks like somebody threw something from the stands. At Durlego, something up in the stands, threw it at the players. Here's Dan, the assistant coach of the Maple Leafs, up on the bench. Obviously, somebody threw some liquid refreshment. Uh, Jimmy, I know the Leafs would like to get a, a win on this road trip. You know, the Toronto Maple Leafs can't afford to fall too far behind. Considering their regular season performance when they finished 19th out of 21, it's amazing Toronto are in the playoffs at all, let alone getting this far. A proud hockey team became perennial sad sacks, rising above mediocrity only on rare occasions. In its 60-year history, the Gardens has seen better stick-handling days than it saw this season. My goodness, look at this mess. And you can call it what you want, but it is a mess. They're in Toronto tonight playing the cellar dwellers from last year. Toronto, here's Bob Cole with an NHL. The worst thing is there are two teams in the bottom third of a 21-team league. Check your pulse. You may not be alive. And for the Toronto Maple Leafs, the season is over. And yet the people came. I mean, if there had been an impetus for Ballard to change, it would have been that the gate was bad, but they were still selling out. How how and why? Because it was the only game in town. It had a history, a brilliant history of uh, success back in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s and obviously in the 60s. And so 
it was handed down from grandfather to son to grandson all the way down the line. And you were indoctrinated as to being a Leaf fan by your parents. And so there was no other choice. But listen, the memory of past wins, that can only sell tickets for so long. Along the line, fans need something new to get excited about. And other than drafting Wendell Clark in 1985, Ballard hadn't fed fans a scrap. And then, the end of the decade, everything changes. Because Harold Ballard has passed away. The future of the organization is suddenly really unclear. I mean, this was the man who had built an apartment inside Maple Leaf Gardens, who'd etched his hand and footprints into a concrete slab underneath center ice, for God's sake. Enter stage right, Steve Stavro, grocery store magnate, the team's new owner. And Steve, he could not have been more different from Ballard. He didn't want the limelight. And perhaps more importantly, he was willing to pony up the dough. Steve was a, a, a marvelous individual. He didn't want to have any of the notoriety. He didn't want to be up front uh, being the face of the franchise the way Harold was. If any of the players got too popular, Harold would uh, go on a tyrant and immediately grab the front page again. But Steve was in the background, and right away you could sense that ownership was going to spend money and put people, hockey people, and good hockey people in premier positions within the organization. While the Leafs had been languishing throughout the 80s, another team had been dominating, had become a textbook for how to actually build a team. The 1989 Stanley Cup champs, Calgary Flames. They've made it. Calgary Flames, 1989. Stanley Cup champions. Just five seconds will prove it. Here comes the siren. Here come the Flames. Champions. The architect of their success was their general manager, Cliff Fletcher, the silver fox, Trader Cliff. After reaching the mountaintop, Cliff, now suddenly Cliff, he's looking for a new opportunity. Toronto was very, very appealing to go to. I mean, it was a hockey capital of the world back then even. The team was not very good when I got there. So, you know, I didn't feel that it would take too much to take it to a higher level in a hurry. I knew just by watching them play that, uh, quite frankly, it was very easily to define. They just didn't have enough talent. Cliff's arrival instantly flips a switch at Maple Leaf Gardens. There is a new level of accountability and professionalism in town. Cliff looks at the assets in his farm system. He looks at his scouting team. He snags play-by-play -play man Bill Waters as his assistant GM. He is desperate to know what he's got what he needs to do, and in what order. And when it becomes clear that the answers are not enough and more talent, Cliff goes shopping. Back then, NHL free agency, it didn't yield very much. So if you wanted talent, you had to trade for it. These were the pre-salary cap days of the NHL, back when GMs didn't need to worry about player salaries and balancing themselves out in a trade. So, armed with owner Steve Stavro's gold American Express card, 
Cliff was ready to hit the market. Now listen, trades are always a huge risk. You never really know what you're getting and if it's gonna actually equal up with what you gave up. Unless, you know, you're making a deal with your old Stanley Cup winning team and if that's the case, well, suddenly the odds are hugely tilted in your favor. Cliff had kept in touch with everyone in Calgary, including their new general manager, Doug Risebrow. Now, suddenly, the Flames are struggling to re-sign star player Doug Gilmore. They just didn't have the money to keep him in Calgary. Here's Gilmore coming in. The backhand rebound. He scores! Gilmore gets that goal we were just talking about. And it's 3-1, Calgary. It was a hard, hard decision because we were, you know, a tight-knit team. We won the cup together and it was time for a change. So I, uh, after New Year's Eve, we played Montreal, we won. That night I, we had a team party and I told everybody I was leaving. And uh, unfortunately, I went in the next day, saw the GM and he said, okay, if you're, if you're gonna walk, I'm gonna trade you. So I was traded 24 hours later. When the deal was done, this was the biggest trade in NHL history, players-wise at least. 10 guys in total, five one way, five the other. To Toronto, Doug Gilmore, Jamie McCowan, Kent Manderville, Rick Natras, and Rick Wamsley. Going back to Calgary, Gary Lehman, Alexander Godinyuk, Craig Berube, Michelle Petit, and Jeff Reese. Looking back, I mean, it seems like the most one-sided trade in history. It was the strangest trade I've ever made in my career because normally as a general manager, you know the players you're trading a lot better than the players you're acquiring. But I was the opposite. I was only three months removed from running that team all those years. And so I was very up to date on all the players there and uh, probably less so on the Maple Leafs. But it was a deal that they initiated and they, whatever they asked for, I said yes, until the deal was done. 10 players changing uniform. Literally a third of your team almost is new. And in this day and age, obviously it never happened again, I don't think. What the Leafs had gotten were two solid veteran defensemen, a backup goalie, a decent prospect centerman, and an instant game changer in Gilmore. They say that great players make everyone better, and Doug Gilmore did that from day one. He wanted the puck. A lot of guys prior to that, they didn't want the puck because they're making mistakes, turnovers, goals being scored, where other guys were skating with plaster of Paris in their gloves. Dougie had the supple hands and he wanted the puck. And he immediately exuded that confidence that was picked up by other players. You know, when, when we sat thinking we couldn't find a game that these pluggos could win, well, all of a sudden now, when Dougie and, and the trade is made, these guys aren't that pluggo anymore. You know, Wendell's playing much better. We've got a lot of other guys that are picking up their game. There's some young people here that might, you know, just the confidence that he oozed was very quickly caught on and picked up by the other people in that dressing room. He wasn't the captain, but he very quickly became the leader. 
a star player or two, that wasn't going to be enough though. They needed someone to keep everyone in line. So next step in Cliff's playbook, you get yourself a new coach. Lucky for him, he didn't have to look very far. Pat Burns, the coach that Cliff had gone up against in the 1989 final, was suddenly on the market. Walked away from the last two years of his contract with the Canadians. Moments after dropping that bombshell, Burns announced he had found other employments. In fact, a better deal with the Maple Leafs in Toronto. Pat Burns has a four-year contract. He is obviously the man Cliff Fletcher had been waiting for. Very proud to have the opportunity of becoming the head coach of the Toronto Maple Leafs. It's uh, part of the original six teams. I think it has the same philosophy, the same kind of feeling here in Toronto as we have in, that they had in Montreal. That people talk hockey, love hockey, and uh, maybe I don't want to go to practice with some sandals on. They want to come with some good boots on and come to work. Pat Burns is an anomaly. I mean, most coaches are grandfathered in after their playing careers are over. The odd one might be a teacher or something, but no one's an undercover cop. Well, Burnsy was an easy choice back then. I mean, he coached the Montreal Canadiens. As you all know, he uh, had a very interesting background. He, he served years in law enforcement uh, as an undercover cop in very dangerous situations and being locked up in Kingston Penitentiary with no one knowing he's there to try to bust a drug ring. So, I mean, Pat was one tough individual. As soon as Pat Burns arrives, he takes Doug Gilmore to lunch. First thing he said to me, more or less, you're our leader here. You've got to be the hardest working guy in practice each and every day. And that'll carry over to games. And if, if your teammates see you doing that, then they're going to do it as well. So he was a police officer. He had that cop mentality that was very intimidating. But he was also a father figure and a friend. He pushed us as much as he could. And I can't say enough about him. One player who was perhaps the most struck by Burns's cop mentality was the newly arrived 28-year-old rookie winger, Nikolai Borshevsky. Growing up in Siberia, Nikolai had never dreamt of playing in Canada. No. I can say with all honesty that back then, when I was 18, 19, 20 years old, I couldn't even dream about such an opportunity to be where I am, here in Canada, and play for such a team as the Toronto Maple Leafs. You know, back when we were young, our coaches often used to say, if you want to test a player, he should play against a player on the Canadian team, and you will see what each player is really worth. During the Cold War, Soviet players weren't allowed to play in North America. By 1989, you were either approved to go by the state, or you defected. But then, on December 26, 1991, the Iron Curtain fell, and everything changed. Later, when the Soviet Union collapsed and everything started changing in our country, we started realizing that we could now travel and play for the best and strongest league in the world. Of course, it seemed fascinating and I wanted to go play for the Leafs. As an athlete, I wanted to test my abilities and skills and see what I am worth as a person and as an athlete, as a player. Obviously, I couldn't predict what was awaiting me. The only thing I knew it was good and that I came prepared and in good shape. I understood that it's extremely important to Pat Burns for a player to give it all. That was very obvious to me. I think it's the right thing to do. Back in the day, as they used to say, including Pat Burns, you should play with your heart. 
It was nice that with time, people started trusting me to play. And Nicky was from ah, somewhere out in the Urals. And he had a smile on his face 24-7. And he couldn't speak a bit of English, but he tried. And I would, I loved Nikki because every night when you would go down and I would go down, we had a, a coach's show that I had to talk to Bernsey uh, about. And there'd be Nikki out in the hallway with the rasp, the saw, sandpaper, a chisel, and sawdust up to his ankles. Uh, brutal, brutal sticks, Joe, brutal, brutal sticks. And he'd sandpaper the thing till it was round. The stick was round. It was like a. It was almost like playing with a, a broom handle. And and then he would rasp and saw and cut the blades and everything else. And uh, he just loved it. No, I paid a lot of attention to the stick. I worked on it quite a bit of the time. As an example, it took me around 30 minutes to work on just one stick. I polished it and it was very important for me to have a very smooth surface of a stick. A stick should be comfortable for me. Small details and nuances were so important to me, but I can't call it idiosyncratic. Stick is a stick. Pretty much right away, Borshevsky is given the nickname Stick. It's unclear if it's because of how obsessed he was over his sticks or because he was about as slim as one. Borshevsky was among the smallest players in the league, but he had heart in spades, and he could score. In his NHL debut, Nicky nets two goals. He'd score five in his first five games and go on to lead the team in goals that season. Borshevsky was one of two pleasant surprises for Pat Burns that fall. The other was a rookie goaltender named Felix Potvin. Racina shot, stopped by Potvin! The man who came to be known as the Cat had an awesome pedigree. He'd played for Canada at the World Juniors, gone to the Memorial Cup with Chikudami, and in 1991-92, he had backstopped the Leafs farm team to the Calder Cup Finals. Still, when Felix showed up at training camp in 1992, few sensed his potential would reveal itself so soon. Besides, the Leafs had two proven veteran goaltenders. But suddenly, one goes down to injury. Felix has a chance. A chance to work alongside Hall of Famer Grant Fuhrer, a guy with five Stanley Cups and a Vesna Trophy to his name. You know, just watching him practice, working hard, trying to stop every shot was just a, a good mindset. And uh, I remember one time I think he got beat. We got beat 11 to 5, and then I was roommate with him. Funny enough, we got back to the room, so I'm thinking to myself, okay, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna say much. We're just gonna relax watching TV. And then Grant says, uh, you want to go out for dinner? I said, so I was kind of surprised. I said, yeah, if you want. He said, yeah. I said, this, if I was not gonna be there, it could have been 15 to, to five. So, you know, that's just the way he approached the game. He was an easygoing guy. He loved the game, and um, you know, I, I learned a lot from him. You know, it's bad for those guys to get hurt, but, but for me at the same time, the door was open and all I had to do was, was to take my chance and uh, I'm glad it worked out. Felix would go on to have among the best rookie seasons of any goaltender in Leafs history. 
and his performance when the opportunity presented itself allowed Cliff Fletcher to see that just maybe Potvin had the makings of a starter. And wait, if Felix was a starter, then, well, maybe, hmm, just maybe, it occurred to Cliff Fletcher. He had a nice little piece of trade bait up his sleeve. Cliff's faith in Felix is so strong that he decides to trade Grant Fuhr to the Buffalo Sabres for left winger Dave Anderchuk. I mean, I'm 30 now, Felix is 21, so you figure with a nine-year difference and Felix proving he can play in the league, that eventually they need more scores. So their best commodity was two goalies, so they had to get rid of one of the goalies. And being 30 means you go. Both of them can't play in the same hockey game, so uh, we just felt that we might as well take advantage of the situation to acquire a player at this time who could really help our hockey team. But by trading Grant, they, they really showed me a lot of confidence. And uh, without talking a lot, but, but just to make that move, just Cliff, you know, pulling that trigger and, and getting Dave a big piece of, of the puzzle for those playoffs coming. I was just happy and excited to have a chance to, to be number one for that team. The infusion of Dave Anderchuk is a spark. Instantly. Suddenly, Doug Gilmore has the perfect wingman. Once he got in front of that net, it was hard to move the man. He was a bonafide goal scorer. Like, he just knew how to score. I passed the puck, and there's nothing better than have a guy that could score on your line. So, yeah, he was a beast out there. Took a lot of punishment from the net. But he played hard, and uh, just a lot... Like, you don't know how good he is until, like I said, I was on the ice with him. He was my line mate. And the success that we had together. Drop pass Gilmore to Andrachuk, shooting, scores! Dave Andrachuk hits the 50 mark, the third Maple Leaf player to do so. Gilmore, coming out of the corner, slipped it in front. Borshevsky and Andrachuk couldn't control it. Borshevsky to Andrachuk in tight. He got it again, another chance, they score! Pass now, Gil shot, scores! Five seconds remaining, the Canadians shoot it out to center. This baby is over. Confidence is a powerful thing. And the Leafs had it. And it was infectious. Leaf fans in this city who had been hibernating for years suddenly started to come alive again. Games of softball and tag suddenly transformed themselves into road hockey. Kids clamoring to declare themselves Gilmore, Clark, or Potvin. 12-year-old Andy Petrillo felt it too. And suddenly those adults inside watching the hockey games, they're not so crazy or boring anymore. You know, when you're young, you may not understand why something is happening. You just know something is happening. I just sensed a change in the city from more Toronto jerseys being worn to people honking, to people feeling good, to the conversation around the dinner table in my family. You just knew something was in the air. That was when I fell in love with my favorite player, Felix Potvin. I loved his nickname because, you know, when you're young, you're impressionable. The cat, right? And of course, I would walk around doing some stupid moves going, check out my reflexes, right? Because now you're trying to imitate your favorite player. I ended up loving Felix Potvin so much that when I had my confirmation the following year, going to a Catholic school, I wanted Felix Potvin to be my confirmation name. It's supposed to be a saint. Now, there is a Saint Felix Potvin. The problem is, is when I submitted it, I had put down 
Felix Potvin, savior of the Leafs. And so right away they knew that it wasn't exactly the saints and the saviors they were thinking of as the Catholic Church. So I wasn't allowed to use his name. That was the first time I really got a taste of that kind of fandom. The whole city was working itself into a frenzy. And that's when Glenn Anderson decided to drop his would-be chart topper, The Leafs Are the Best. He'd been writing it over the course of the winter with some local musicians. Music was his thing. According to Gilmore, Glenn was always writing songs, often just about the people he'd met on the street. He wanted his Leaf song to be a full team affair. The music video was recorded at Maple Leaf Gardens. It was an off day, but Pat Burns called everyone in to participate. Captain Wendell Clark was down for helping out. He just wanted to stay as far to the edge of the frame as possible. I was on the outskirts. I I got no rhythm or nothing, but I was just barely there. I didn't want to be a visual in this, what was going on. I wasn't that type of guy, but it was, uh, was a lot of fun. It all worked out. Guys had fun with it. Glenn had a great time doing it. As Wendell explains it to a lot of the guys on that team, creating an anthem was great, but this was really about supporting their teammate and his off-ice passions. When you play a team sport, you got 22 to 24 guys on a team, and for the team to play well, you have to understand what everybody brings to the table because you need it. You know, it'd be pretty boring if, if everybody had the same personality and the team, you know, thrived under under the different personalities and, and everybody had their own their own vibe with the team. Team chemistry is a really tricky thing. For everyone on a squad to go to war together, to trust one another, to back each other up, all things that you require for a long and arduous playoff, you have to become a family. And as Doug Gilmore explains it, that is exactly what Burns wanted. And this is one thing, Pat, he really wanted. You guys make sure you have parties and get together and get to know your families and the wives, the girlfriends, whatever it is. He said, we're all in this together. You know, you have to be close-knit. You don't have to hang with everybody, but you have to be a family in that room at all costs. It's always going to be pressure. The way to get away from pressure is those guys in the dressing room, your teammates. And the better we all play, the better we all become. No one can attest to how important a role music plays in an athlete's preparation more than our all-star goalie, Freddie Anderson. When he's not stopping pucks, Freddie can often be found with headphones on. To get a sense of what Freddie's been listening to, go check out the Freddie Anderson's 31 playlist on the Leafs app or on Apple Music. Now, a lot of you probably know this, but to win the Stanley Cup requires Herculean endurance. You need to win 16 games in total. But every time you win a round, you level up to a nastier, more battle-hardened opponent. And time wears you down. The team who makes it out the other side has survived a pressure cooker unlike perhaps any in sport. Going into round one of the playoffs, the Leafs have a theme song, a head of steam, and a city behind them. And that's a lot. But then on the other side, it also might not mean a thing. Doug Gilmore, he's hoisted a cup before. He knows its weight and that an amazing season will be all for naught, will be completely forgotten if these Leafs can't beat the Detroit Red Wings in the first round. They don't remember what you did during the regular season as much as they do what you do in the playoffs. 
Burns takes them out of town to focus up before the series starts. But it doesn't work. The Leafs are off their game for the first two matchups. Detroit's offense is formidable, Dino Cicerelli gets right under everyone's skin, and everything the Wings touch seems to go in. The Leafs return home, chastened. Before the next game, though, Cliff Fletcher, he calls a team meeting. He tells everyone, don't panic. Stop focusing on your opponent. Instead, hone in on playing your own game. Play your system, the way Burns has taught you to play. And if you do, there is nothing at all to worry about being down two games. The Silver Fox hoped that that, and some real old-fashioned home ice advantage, would suddenly tip the series back to evens. Now, Leafs fans are sometimes criticized for being quiet. And back in the 80s and early 90s, they could easily have been forgiven for not necessarily always jumping to their feet. But this time, coming home, Joe Bowen could sense a very different energy at the gardens. The reaction in the building when they came back was, you know, we know you're better and we're here with you. They were behind them 110%. With a renewed sense of focus and a real infusion of energy from the Toronto faithful, the team wins the next three games, including a really gritty OT victory in Detroit. The Wings, though, take the next one, tying the series. Then, it's Game 7, back at Joe Louis Arena, enemy territory. The whole season, with all its franchise records and hope, will mean nothing if they can't win this. The pressure is on especially for rookie Nikolai Borshevsky. Nicky'd been injured in game one with a stick to the eye, but now he's back, hoping to be the difference maker. Well, of course I was upset to get injured in the first game, but the injury was quite serious as I wasn't allowed to do any physical activity. Because the injury was on my face, two spots were fractured under my eye, it was sort of a crack. Of course it is upsetting when you can't be on the ice with your team and you have to watch, worry, celebrate when the team is winning, but worry when the team is losing and you can't help them one bit. But I was happy that I was allowed to play in Game 7. As far as I remember, I couldn't do any physical activity for about 10 days. There was an opportunity to practice for one day and the day after I was able to play Game 7 in Detroit. I was quite happy that I was trusted with a spot on the roster because I skipped a lot, not practicing or nothing, but I was trusted with a spot on the roster and I was trying really hard to do my best in this game so my team could win. Doug Gilmore describes it as among the best referee games he had ever played. Only one penalty was called by Don Koharski that night. It was tight, but it was clean. And it was even all the way through to overtime again. And that's when a returning Borshevsky wearing a visor to protect his face managed to spot and get his stick on a Bob Rouse point shot that will go down as among the high points in recent Leaf history. Gilmore to Bobby Rouse! Shot scores! Nikolai Borshevsky has scored for Toronto! The Leafs win! The Leafs win! Overtime, this has been an unbelievable turn of the 
Borshevsky would go down as the hero. After over a decade of futility, players, management, and fans suddenly saw it was possible. The Leafs could make a run. It was real. When the Leafs plane returns from Detroit, it is mobbed by fans. The city is officially buzzing. And Andy Petrillo and her family, they are caught right up in it. It was the buzz in the city. It was the honking of the horns. It was seeing more people wearing the jerseys. It was just that party. It was just that coming together that I didn't want to end. Coming from an Italian household, I have to say, you know, sports are no sports. You're always getting a massive feast and you're always getting the homemade wine. That's for sure. But uh, it was just it was very loud. I just remember being very loud because every Italian has to have their say on what's going on. As a kid, I'm soaking this all up. Everyone on that team, you know, was a hero. The team enters the second round with a new sense of confidence. But as they face off against the St. Louis Blues, the team runs into a wall. And that wall's name, Curtis Joseph. Shoots, save Joseph, save Joseph, save by Joseph, save by Joseph. In game one, Cujo blocks 61 of the 62 shots the Leafs send his way in a sweltering hot arena. It was 90 plus outdoors. Guy, people were opening the windows in the hallways, uh, the stairwells, to get fresh air in. Except that all it did was bring in the humidity and then half of the audience was slipping and falling down those stairs because it just condensed on the cold stairs from the, the ice surface and whatnot. It takes until the second overtime for Doug Gilmore, who'd probably lost a good 10 pounds sweating through the course of that game, to reach into what should have been an empty fuel tank and pull out Cujo-defying magic. You know, peppering shots after shots after shots on Cujo. It was just like, okay, this is getting ridiculous. What we were talking about earlier with Anderchuk, I'm waiting for him to get in position. And I think it was Rick Zombo that's kind of pushing him out. Nikki's high in the slot. Murray Barron's on the other side of the net, and I'm, I'm waiting. Okay, come on, Dave, get in this position, get in the position. And then I kind of just went one way, and I turned real quick, and there was an opening. Back of the goal. Gilmore looking in front. Gilmore still with it. Gilmore trying to come out the other side. Now comes the front goal! I've never planned that move. It's just a reaction. It happened, and... Uh, uh, fortunately, it went in quick, and you know what? We had to get ready for game two. The entire series would be another seesaw. Back and forth, back and forth, all the way to game seven. Both goalies standing on their heads every single night. In the first two games alone, Cujo faced 119 shots. He only let in three goals. Finally, in game seven, the dam burst. They'd worn Cujo down. The Toronto Puck suddenly went in, and Felix held the fort at the other end. The Leafs won 6-0. Triumphant, but exhausted. And with no time to heal before the conference finals against the LA Kings. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Game 1 of the Campbell Conference Finals. Tonight's starting lineup for the Los Angeles Kings. 
Charlie Huddy, Daryl Siddle, Pat Connick, Dave Kim, Kelly Rudy, at center number 99, Wayne Gretzky. It was clear right from the beginning that this would be another war. The Leafs take the first game handily, but Kings coach Barry Melrose wants to send a message. And in the final minutes, Kings enforcer Marty McSorley sees Doug Gilmore with his head down and crushes him. Anderson comes in, Gilmore was hit, inside the line by McSorley, and this is going to draw Clark and McSorley into a rocket. They're going and throwing punches, oh, Clark is nailing McSorley. It was my fault. You're not supposed to go through the middle of the ice like that. I've done it a couple of times and it didn't work out that well. So he got me pretty good. At the end of game one, he come across and got Dougie basically sending a message that we're not out of this, you know, to his team and causing some crap. And I just remember Bernsey said, I did, didn't say I couldn't fight Marty. So and next thing you know, I look up and there goes Wendell. And you know how he is when you play against him, how tough he is. He's going to play hard. And he's not going to take advantage of the small guys or whatever. He's going to play hard on everybody. I went across uh, for Marty, and the more years I've talked about this, I said, I should have went straight across and hit Gretzky. I said, he, he healed our best player. I should have just went and hit their best player. As he watched the linesman try to figure out how to assign penalties, Pat Burns just glared at Melrose, a man who, if the stakes needed to be any higher, was actually Wendell Clark's cousin. A few heated words between the benches soon escalates into this. I don't know whether he's talking to L.A. King players. No, he's not. He's talking to Melrose. And Burns is trying to get down at Melrose. Behind the leaf bench, there's Burns telling Melrose, if you want to play that way, you're going to have to go through me too. It was on. The conference finals were deja vu all over again. The seesaw was back in full effect. The Leafs would take game one, LA wins games two and three. Then Toronto takes games four and five. Which brings us to game six. The chance for Toronto to close it out. And of course, it goes to overtime. Longtime fans know exactly where this is headed. Interviewing Doug Gilmore, this was the part of the chat that I had been dreading. I didn't even know how to speak about it because so much has already been said. That moment has been dissected and redissected ad nauseum. But then you can't really tell the story without going there. The most controversial call or missed call in Leafs history. The Leafs had momentum. Wendell Clark had just scored to force the extra period. And then Doug Gilmore is high-sticked by Wayne Gretzky. It draws blood. But referee Kerry Fraser doesn't see it. High sticking should have resulted in a five-minute major penalty, five minutes of advantage in a sudden death situation. But there's no call. Play resumes at even strength. And less than a minute later, Gretzky scores. Kings win. I, I watched that game the other day because I've never seen the game six before from start to finish. And Kerry obviously missed the call on the high stick, but it was probably one of the worst games I've ever seen him ref. Just without that missed call. It was just like, it was just terrible. And I'm going to bug him on that one day when I see him. Now the Leafs go to yet another deciding seventh game, their third series in a row where they would have to play in a contest that was due 
or die. The Toronto press is still clamoring, screaming foul for that missed call, claiming it makes Gretzky's winning goal worthy of an asterisk. They claim he's had a bad series, that he hasn't done anything. So, you know, he goes in and scores a hat trick, throws in an assist for good measure. The Kings win 5-4. It's over. You talk about motivation as a player, and the player is Wayne Gretzky, the best player in the world. And the media in Toronto says that he really hasn't done anything this series. And we're going into game seven in our building. Is that not a wake up call for the best player in the league? It's like, oh boy, who said that? And what, what's he do? He has one of his best games he ever has. And uh, hey, it was, a, it was a fun ride. From up in the executive suite, Cliff Fletcher could see the exhaustion in his team. What happened in my mind in game seven against LA, we just ran out of gas the last 30 minutes of the game. But playing all those intense, tough games, the legs just finally died out on us. And uh, Gretz had one of his greatest games ever. A three hat trick that game, yeah. but uh, I think we just the legs got a little weary from all the competing we had done for 41 days. 21 games in 41 days, six games that went to overtime. Even Joe Bowen, who's been doing the play-by-play in the press box, is beat. I never felt so tired in my entire life. The adrenaline had stopped. It was over. And I can only imagine what the players felt like because that's what they were running on. They were running on adrenaline and they were running on it hard. You get into the room, you probably only have about four hours of sleep because after games, you can't sleep for a couple hours. Obviously, we're going to go out and have a couple drinks with their bite to eat with their friends and family. and. You sit there and talk to everybody. You have your meetings with the coaches. You have your meetings with the GM. It was uh, disappointing, frustrating. Almost called it for about a week a hangover because you just, it'd be like right now, what we're going through. It's just, it's just like waking up going, okay, what do we do today? You don't have any plans, right? Like you, you, you don't have your car packed up if you're going back to Russia or if, if you're going, uh, say back to BC or whatever it might be. Like you're not packed up to leave. You're packed up to go play tomorrow. So that's the difference. It's like, it's just, it's a letdown. It was so deflating. I had gotten these cool new pairs of rollerblades. And I remember with friends, we would ride up and down the street with our Leafs jerseys on and Horns would be honking, and it was the hooting and holler, and you just knew that every time you stepped out of the house, every time you did something, it meant Leafs fans were converging. Leafs fans were waving to one another, honking a horn, doing something. Going out was always a spectacle. I didn't want the party to end, so my girlfriends and I, we slapped on the rollerblades, we put on the Leafs jerseys, and we went out for a blade. And I'll never forget, like, cars going by, and we were still, you know, lifting our fists up in the air, trying to get them to honk. And we would get people, you know, they would do little frowny signs with their mouth or do a little thumbs down, not necessarily at us, but just at at what had happened. And that's when it hit me 
party was done. It was over. And I was so upset. I tried to keep it going. My girlfriends and I tried to keep it going. But that's when we realized, no, in professional sports, the good times only keep going when you win. Once you lose, it cuts off just like that immediately. There's no trail off. It is simply a cutoff. And that's when I started to realize just how much sports toys with your emotions. It was over, but the legacy of that season would live on. For Andy, there was no going back. She was a Leaf fan now, still is, and will be forever. The LA Kings went on to play the Montreal Canadiens, who end up taking the cup that year. Before the end of our chat, I had to ask Cliff just this one question. Do you, do you ever think about how the Leafs would have performed against the Habs in that final if it had happened? It would have been a hell of a series. And as a manager, they're the only team I'd ever played against in the Stanley Cup. I mean, they beat us in, in the Stanley Cup Finals in 86 in, in five games. And in 89, we beat them in game six in Montreal to win the Cup. So it, I was really looking forward to it. But uh, Would have been your rubber match. It would have been my rubber match, but it would have been the greatest thing for Toronto. Yeah. Thanks to Cliff Fletcher, the franchise had been reborn. Even though we haven't come within a high stick of the Stanley Cup since, with hockey set to return, at least we've still got hope. One thing I love about this organization is how you're never too far away from a familiar face. So many of the guys who played on that team, they're still around. Cliff Fletcher acts as a senior advisor to the management group. Wendell Clark and Doug Gilmore, they're community ambassadors. Bob McGill, a part of the defense unit on that team, does color commentary for Marley's games and analysis for Leafs Nation Network. And Nikki Borshevsky, even though he'd suffer a spleen rupture the next season, cutting his whole career short, he chose to stick around the GTA, run a hockey school. I wish, of course, that I could say the same thing for Pat Burns. After three more seasons with the Leafs, Burns went on to coach the Boston Bruins and the New Jersey Devils, which is where he'd finally get his Stanley Cup. In 2005, he retired after being diagnosed with cancer, the disease that would ultimately take his life five years later. Talking to Doug Gilmore, he recalled that despite all the success that Burns would have later, that 92-93 unit still held a really special place in his heart. We had a reunion of the 93 players that uh, were around, and he just said, by far, this is my favorite team. But what we accomplished, how we worked, nobody thought we were going to go anywhere. Everybody on the team bought into his, his plan. It was great to reminisce with all the guys. And Do you have a favorite memory? <laughs> yes. You know what? Screwing around with the coaches sometimes. And Pat Burns was one of the funniest ones ever, is that in the sauna, there was a little tray with some oil in it just to help your sinuses and all that and he blamed one of us but it wasn't us he put that tray on the rocks and it caught on fire and he was running out of there we were laughing so hard <laughs> so i got a couple burnsy ones the other one is i think we're in minnesota and after practice we had cups on the top of the door so burnsy would 
be down to practice, he'd go shower, get his hair all clopped up, and then he'd walk in the dressing room. Well, doesn't he walk in and three cups go right on his head after he just, and Todd Gill fell off the bench He's in the dressing room. And he goes, oh, I'll get you, Giller. I'll get you back. And it wasn't even him. We were dying laughing. So our coaches were our friends. Uh, yes, they're the bosses, they're the leaders, but they all enjoyed the moment, the ride, just like we did. Okay, this has been our June episode. Sorry for the break there. COVID threw us and everyone, as you know, for a serious loop. Today's episode was written by Paul Matthews and produced by Katie Jensen and Vocal Fry Studios for Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment. Special thanks to everyone who sat down with us to help tell their story. First and foremost, Mr. Cliff Fletcher, Doug Gilmore, Wendell Clark, Felix Potvin, Nikolai Borchevsky, Joe Bowen, and Andy Petrillo. Of course, you can catch Andy on Leafs Lunch every weekday. And if you don't already, you must follow her on Twitter. Give Bonesy a follow too. Further thanks to Nick Konorowski for all the story consulting, research, and interview help. Our associate producers, Jay Coburn and Erica Dreyer, and Mike Zamedis and his team for the intensive archival polls. We owe you guys big. The pop music in today's episode can be heard on Frederick Anderson's 31 and the Blue and White Classic Playlist, available on Apple Music and the Leafs app. Now, with play about to return, we're going to throw all our attention onto that. So this is it for season one. We hope you've enjoyed these stories. If this was your first brush with Leafs Forever, go back and check out some of the other episodes. In particular, as we all know and engage in this larger cultural conversation around systemic racism in our world and in our sport, I highly recommend listening to episode six, our conversation with Val James. He tells a very important story, one that every Leafs fan and hockey fan generally should hear. Now, if you like this episode, tell people about it, both your hockey-loving and hockey-agnostic friends alike, and write us a review. Your feedback is always welcome. We'd love to hear what you think of this and the entire season. Oh, and if you have any ideas of stories that we haven't brought out yet, provided they're about the blue and white and fascinating, let us know. Now, quit listening to me. Go out and start getting pumped for the playoffs. Hockey is back, baby. I'm Scott Willits. Until next time, go Leafs go.